0: Greetings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Sunday School Podcast for October 1st, 2023, the 18th Sunday after Pentecost. And as we continue our exploration of the textbook 120 Bible stories, the Sunday School lesson for today is story number four about Noah and the flood. Now, this story covers four chapters of the Bible, Genesis 6 through 9. So, I'll be reading parts of Scripture from those four chapters, but we'll be skipping bits along the way and just sort of reading through others without too much comment. But this, again, is a pivotal story early on in the history of the world, early on in the Bible, and it is there, again, to show not only our need for Christ— But point to Christ our Savior, who will come much later in the story. So, we'll just start out with Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, which read, "...when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose." Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Actually, that's just the first four verses of Genesis 6, but I want to stop there. This passage is not included in the Bible story in the textbook, but I included it because it raises a lot of questions. Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of man? There's been kind of this, this funny um, funny idea floating around that the, uh, the sons of God are angels and the daughters of man are, are human women. And because the angels took the women and had babies, the babies were superheroes or demigod giants who were known as the Nephilim. It's, uh, it's nothing quite so Marvel Comic Universe-ish. Remember, Seth has been born. And when Seth is born, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And so you have believers, and you have unbelievers, and the sons of God here are merely the believers, probably the descendants of Seth, and they are the mighty ones of old because in the face of this dark world where much evil is being done, where everything is falling apart, they are the mighty ones because they hold fast to God's promises. So the sons of God, the believing men, they they get married They marry women and they have children. Mystery solved. Verses 5 through 8 the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a great verse about original sin, by the way. Apart from God and his grace, the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. So much for man being basically good. Verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of of the Lord, so we read here that the Lord regrets making man; he is grieved in his heart, and so he decides that he will uh, he will blot mankind out. And yet Noah finds favor in God's eyes, and these uh, these verses here are uh, are a, a brief. Exercise in law and gospel. God's law desires and demands holiness from mankind. And because man has sinned and is no longer holy and is breaking God's laws right and left, then according to God's law, he is angry with mankind. He is grieved that he has made them. And the wages of sin is death, so he is going to blot them out. But... According to his gospel, he has promised that he will send the Redeemer to save mankind from sin, so he can't blot everybody out because then he wouldn't keep his promise. And so while he is about to wash away the majority of mankind, the vast majority, Noah finds favor in the eyes of God. It's not because Noah has earned this, but because God favors him. And it is through God, sorry, it is through Noah that the Messiah will be born. By the way, in between Adam and Noah, we have um, some other patriarchs who are in the line, um, the the ancestral line of Jesus. Um, We have Adam, of course, then Seth. His son is Enosh, whose son is Kenan, whose son is Mahalalel, whose son is Jared, whose son is Enoch. Enoch is the one who doesn't die but walks with God and is taken to heaven without death. Enoch's son is Methuselah, who lives the longest of anyone ever. And Methuselah's son is Lamech, not to be confused with the great-grandson of Cain, who wants to kill far more than Cain does. Lamech, then, is the father of Noah. Um, I I bring this up just because as we set the stage for, uh, for the flood, most of these men have extraordinarily long lives. So except for Adam and Enoch, all of these men are still alive at the time that Noah is alive. And assuming that they haven't spread out much across the earth, Noah probably knows all of these men, at least a little bit. But one by one, from the genealogies of Scripture, these men die before the flood, with the last one dying just about a year before the flood begins. And so, uh, so as, as uh, the flood approaches, how, how lonely Noah must feel... Anyways, we know from uh, Hebrews 11, verse 7, that Noah has found favor in the eyes of the Lord by faith, not by works. And so, God has a plan to save Noah and his family. So, going on in Genesis 6, at verse 11, we read, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood." So we note here, just in passing, that um, those who have rejected God, um, they're not just sinful and corrupt, but this corruption also leads to violence. I bring that up because you hear people now and then say that uh, if we just got rid of Christianity, we'd get rid of so much war and fighting, and that simply is ridiculous. But God declares he's about to destroy mankind except for Noah and his family. And then he gives instructions for the, uh, for the construction of the ark. So many cubits long, so many cubits wide, etc. It's supposed to have three decks. Um, and this is where Noah and the animals will live during the flood. A couple of things about the ark, its construction, and its size. First off, if you turn cubits into feet... The ark is going to be about 450 feet long. It's going to be about 75 feet wide. It's going to be about 45 feet high. Now, it was St. Augustine who, who pointed out that the ark is roughly the dimensions of a human being. Not the same size, but the same dimensions, which means the ark effectively looks like a floating casket, a coffin. But after all the death of this flood, Noah and his family will emerge from this coffin to new life in a renewed earth. Another thing is the... um, the occasional question, is there actually enough room in this ark with three floors to hold Noah, his family, and at least two of every kind of animal in the world? And um, Some have made the calculations and said yes. Some have made the calculations and said no. I'm going to tell you it really doesn't matter that much because the Lord has said there will be space for all. And so it could be as they say in Doctor Who the ark is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Look, there's the, uh, the vision that Isaiah has of, of the temple in Isaiah chapter 7, I believe it is, where he walks into the temple and all of a sudden he's, he's, he's standing inside the Holy of Holies, but it's, it's so great that seraphim are flying around. So he's, he's walked into a room that's bigger on, on the, the inside than the outside because he's he stepped into heaven by stepping into the most holy place. Um, if the Lord says there will be room inside the ark for all of these things, all these animals, plus food and supplies for 150 days or so, um, then we say, blessed be the name of the Lord. If we already believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, if we believe that Christ rose from the dead, then believing that an ark could hold all these creatures is not really tough to do. All right, so the Lord commands that, that Noah build the ark, tells him to, to, um, to load into the ark two of, of each animal, um, birds and animals both, along with creeping things, and every sort of food is to be stored in there as well. And we read in verse 22, Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. Picking up at chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So we note here that uh, that. The Lord commands two of every unclean animal, male and female, so that they continue to reproduce after the flood, but seven pairs of clean animals and seven pairs of the birds— um, the clean animals seven pairs because um, that way Noah and his family can offer sacrifices when the time comes and there will still be animals left over and God is also going to say that that soon they can um, they can actually consume meat from the clean animals for food that lies just a little bit in the future after the flood. We read in verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps in the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth." And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So the, uh, it sounds from the text that Noah has help in gathering the creatures. Um, as God commands Noah, um, the, these animals enter the ark and, and go in. So the, uh, the Lord has given Noah some, uh, some dominion over these animals, perhaps unknown since the time of Adam. And then we read in verse 16 that the Lord shut Noah and everybody else in the ark. This is his flood. This is his act of judgment. And this is his ark and his work of salvation. He's had Noah built it, but the Lord shuts Noah and his family in to say, I, uh, I will take care of you inside and I will, uh, I will tell you when it's safe to go out again. We read in verse 17 that the flood continued 40 days on the earth. And this is uh, this story is the first use of 40 as a symbolic number in the Bible. Um, I cannot imagine that hearing the rain drum on the roof of the ark for 40 days is... Um, is a pleasant experience, especially when you know that there are people outside who are being drowned and, and, and put to death because of this flood. Um, from here on out in Scripture, 40 will be a number of, of a time of trial in which the people of God are sustained by God's mercy. So here, Noah and his family are alive during this world-destroying flood, but but God keeps them alive. The Israelites will wander around the wilderness for 40 years, an unpleasant experience, but God keeps them alive and feeds them. And also, for instance, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness 40 days and nights while he's tempted by the devil. It's with this story of the flood that 40 gets its symbolic meaning of a time when, um, when people, the people of God are, are suffering, but God sustains them and then delivers them. All right, so the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And we read a few verses later, in verse 22: Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was was the breath of life died. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So ends Genesis 7. And Genesis 8 begins with this great news. But God remembered Noah And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So, The flood ends, and earth starts to appear once again as the waters recede. Why are the waters subsiding? It says in verse 1 of chapter 8 that God made a wind blow over the earth. And I bring this up because the word for wind in Hebrew is the same word as spirit. The flood, as we'll hear in the New Testament, the flood is a type of baptism. And baptism, of course, is a, a new birth or a recreation of the sinner into a saint. At the original creation, back in Genesis chapter 1, it opens with a spirit hovering above the waters And then God kind of corrals the waters and puts it in its place that the land is made visible. So the the, the land is, is created, if you will, out of the water. Here, the earth is covered with water again, and then God puts the water in its place by having a wind Cause it to subside. And and so as there was as there was spirit um, at the creation, the land came out of waters, so here there is wind, same word as spirit, and the land is brought forth from the waters once again. Verse six. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up on the earth. Raven doesn't come back after a flood and everything dying. There's plenty of carrion for uh, for the raven to eat. Then Noah sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him into the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had decided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent for the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So Noah sends out a dove, and the dove comes back at first empty, beaked, But eventually the dove brings back an olive branch as proof that life is renewed on earth. Now this is also setting up Jesus' baptism because when Jesus is baptized the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove and this is an announcement to us that Jesus comes to bring new life as that Dove brought an olive branch at the time of the flood to show that life had been renewed uh, after the flood. So again, here we have wind, same word as spirit, causing the waters to subside, and then the dove um, shows proof of life after flood. And uh, then at Jesus' baptism, as he is coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit. alights on him in the form of a dove, um, reminding us that we have new life in Christ. And in our baptism, of course, we are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, who is at work in that baptism to give us new life. All right, so so once um, Noah has waited, um, we read in, uh, in verse 15, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. So this earth isn't a new creation, but it is a cleansed creation. It's still an old sinful world. Noah and his family are still sinners. But first, God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1. Man ruined it. Here in Genesis 8, he kind of renews or uh, or resets creation, if you will, by getting rid of an awful lot of evil. And this um, helps us look forward to when Jesus comes again in glory and there's a the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. By the way, real quick, um, so Noah has a wife and his sons have wives. His sons are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so there are eight people total alive after the flood, who come off of the ark. And, and so the number eight becomes symbolic of, of new life in Christ, especially given through holy baptism, because the flood washes away the wicked and eight people come out of the ark. Um, likewise, um, in baptism, we emerge from the flood of the font and have new life in Christ. And that's why so many baptismal fonts... Are eight-sided to remind us of this. Um, another great use of the number eight in Scripture is Jesus was born on the first day of the week, which is also the eighth day of the previous week, and and that too is a symbol of of new creation. Anyways, verse twenty of chapter eight. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God declares that the, this, this worldwide judgment via flood will not happen again. Even though man is still evil and deserves it, the Lord declares that he will not do it again. He also renews his covenant and the rainbow will be proof of that, his covenant that that the Messiah is coming. As chapter 9 opens up just after what I read, um, Noah blesses, I'm sorry, God blesses Noah and his sons and says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He uh, renews their, their dominion up over the animals and says that now the animals will dread them. And he also gives to them permission to... Eat the meat of the animals. They're not permitted to to consume the blood of the animals, but from now on in um, in God's will for his people, eating meat, eating the flesh of animals is okay. So up to then in scripture, the only time that animals are killed are as sacrifices to God. And now God tells Noah one in his family that they can eat meat too. But it should remind us every time we have meat at a meal, that a living thing has been sacrificed to, to keep us alive. And that too should remind us of, of how God has sacrificed his son to give us eternal life. In Genesis 9, we read, God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the field. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And God goes on to repeat this again and again, that the rainbow is a sign of his covenant, that he will not send another flood to wipe out mankind. Instead... He will send the Savior. Really, this promise of the rainbow is to say, when you see a rainbow, remember that God promises send Jesus too. So that's a, a quick look at, at the flood with a few notes about the text along the way. Real quick then, before we finish this podcast, um, how does the flood um, point to Christ? Well, um, remember the numbers. Remember especially the number eight, which becomes a symbol of recreation. Um, eight souls are delivered to form the nucleus of the human race after the flood. Um, as a week is made up of seven days because the Lord created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh, Jesus rises on the eighth day of the week. And uh, and in Christ, then, we are new creations by the work of the Holy Spirit. In uh, in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, St. Peter makes clear that the flood is a type of baptism where the wicked are drowned and the righteous delivered. In fact, we read um, in 1 Peter 3 that, the, uh, that Christ... "...descended into hell to preach to the spirits in prison because," says the text, "...they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ." All right, so so here we have the flood as as pointing to Christ's gift of holy baptism, and in fact, um, when we baptize someone at Good Shepherd, we make use of the flood prayer in the baptismal rite, and and part of that prayer goes like this: Almighty and eternal God, according to your strict judgment, you condemn the unbelieving world through the flood, yet according to your great mercy, you preserve believing Noah and his family. Eight souls and eight souls in all. And then, after um, speaking about Pharaoh drowned in the Red Sea and Israel delivered, and Jesus' baptism, the prayer continues. We pray that you would behold us all according to your boundless mercy and bless us with true faith by the Holy Spirit. That through this saving flood, all of us, all sin in us, which has been inherited from Adam, and which we and which we ourselves have committed since, would be drowned and die. Grant that we be kept safe and secure in the holy ark of the Christian Church, being separated from the multitude of unbelievers and serving Your name at all times with a fervent spirit and a joyful hope. So that with all believers in Your promise, we would be declared worthy of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. So, so in that prayer, uh, as part of the church, we are inside the ark, um, separated from the multitude of unbelievers on the outside, and and in that case, then um, the last day is is when we uh, we finally step out of the ark and see the new heavens and the new earth. So, as beautiful as we think this place is. We ain't seen nothing yet. Hey, I, I mentioned First Peter three before. I forgot to mention a while back that um, that we also hear about about Noah in um in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter two, and that is where um, S- Saint Peter calls Noah a herald or a preacher of righteousness. The ark took a long time to build, 80 years or so. Um, And and the whole time that Noah is building, what is he doing? He's also preaching. He's calling his neighbors to repentance. If there's room for the animals in the ark, there's certainly room for a few repentant neighbors too. But nobody takes him up on it. Anyways... um, so, so we have the number eight point into Christ. We have the flood as a type of baptism. I mentioned before as well that um, that God permits Noah and his family to eat meat. And so each time we eat meat, we should remember that something is sacrificed for our life. and Christ was sacrificed for our life. God forbids Noah and his family from consuming the blood of the animals because the blood is the life of the animal, says God. Now, this has led the Reformed Church to say that the Lord's Supper can't be Jesus' body and blood because God has forbidden the consumption of blood. We respond as quite the opposite. God declares that blood is life Jesus came to give us His life, so it only makes total sense that in the sacrament, Jesus would not just give us His body, but also give us His blood for forgiveness and salvation, and life. All right. And a final great, uh, great type of Christ, or something pointing to Christ in uh, in this text, is the rainbow. Um, God's promise that he will not destroy the earth again with a flood. Instead, he declares that he will be patient, he will keep his promise, and he will send the Savior to redeem the world that all who believe in him might have everlasting life. So the rainbow remains a reminder not of sinful pride of one sort or another, but of God's patience and faithfulness with all sinners. And as the rainbow is seven colors, perhaps it is a symbol of God preserving this creation until Christ comes again? Perhaps. In the meantime, God grants you every blessing as you meditate upon this text. God give you every good gift if you are teaching this to others. And until we talk again, the peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen.